1: Friend, when people try to drive a wedge between the work of Jesus Christ as Savior at the cross and the work of Jesus Christ as their advocate in the judgment... They're doing something that Christ himself is not doing. I've heard this. You have too. Some are saying, I believe in the cross of Christ, but I don't believe in any investigative judgment or stuff like that. I'm a gospel-believing Christian. Well, they really don't understand the gospel very much because they don't realize the one who took our place on the cross of Calvary is the same one who takes our place in the judgment day.
2: that's Pastor Michael Oxen Tanko and this is Reaching Your Heart. Today's message with Pastor Michael Oxen is entitled Pounds of Purpose. That's Pounds of Purpose and you can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. Before we get started, we want you to know that we believe here at Reaching Your Heart that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us at any time, day or night. 888-244 Hope. That's 888 244 4673. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxenteco.
1: We have been given pounds of providence here. We have been given an opportunity to exercise faith in Christ to move into a place that is alive with the promise of tomorrow. It's not about Pastor Mike. It's not about reaching hearts. It's about the prophetic mission of our church mandated way back from the dawn of time. Reconstituted in 1844 for the good of the human race. We are part of that great call. And Lord, I just pray that today as we open our Bibles, may we catch a better picture of what it means to use our talents That are pounds of purpose for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I don't like living a life that doesn't make sense. Are you that way? I want my life to have purpose, meaning in it. Don't you? Do you? I do. Now, friend, we have all been placed here for a purpose. And God's purpose in sending Jesus is to save us all right here. Now, I want to be saved in God's kingdom, but you know, before I'm saved in God's kingdom, I want to be saved here. I want to be saved in my relationships with others and God as I live my life to the end. The church of Christ was established on earth for the express purpose of the salvation of sinners. That's why Christ constituted the church. And with that fact firmly fixed comes the reality that God's people are imperfect. God's people are damaged. God's people are vulnerable. God's people are extremely flawed. And at times, God's people are problematic for the cause of Christ on earth, thus affecting his vision from heaven. Have you noticed that? That the church can be full of imperfect people? Now take yourself and pinch yourself. Did you pinch yourself? You know, come on, you got hands. Pinch yourself a little bit, not to pain here. You just pinched a very flawed and imperfect person. Okay? It's a fact. But friend, none of these challenges that I've just here mentioned, none of this changes the fact that God loves Jesus' church, which we are, and that we flawed people, though we be, are here for a purpose And God's purpose can be realized in our lives, a huge purpose. Before he sent Jesus, God looked down the timeline into a vast eternity, a long eternity, a tunnel of time that will never end. And he saw the huge hole that would be left behind if one single soul is lost at the end of time. And his heart of love looked and wanted to fill those holes so that you and me, we would be saved he established the church for the salvation of the lost. And so Jesus came to this earth as the great messenger of the covenant to seek and to save the lost. In Luke 19, the parable of the Novum begins as an illustration to better drive home the story of Zacchaeus. You know, he was a poor lost man who needed to be found. Christ came to find him. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was hated by his own people because he collected taxes for the Romans he was considered a sellout because he profited on the backs of his own people to support the Roman enemy. So this IRS agent defrauded his own people to get ahead and make himself look good with Rome. And so he was on the outs with everybody. Rome didn't like him because they didn't think much of him either. And definitely his people did. And it was a lonely existence for Zacchaeus. As the great evangelist friend, Christ came to Jericho on a heartfelt mission to find Zacchaeus' home... And on the way, he saw him in a tree because he was trying to find Jesus in a way that a short man can. He climbed in a tree. And Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to stay at your house today. You know what I like about Jesus? Christ doesn't fit into our notions of what we ought to do sometimes. Sometimes we stay away from people because it might rub off and hurt us, right? We're afraid that if we associate with that person, we'll be defiled. Christ had no problem associating with broken people, with sinners in need of grace, with the person who has not measured up in God's plan. The great messenger of the covenant met Zacchaeus in his house. Zacchaeus, the sinner, rejoiced that Jesus, the saint, the son of God, would come to his house and eat with him with no shame. And so Zacchaeus, the sinner, repented and he became a believer and in time a saint called by God to share God. Now, why did he do it? Why did this man move from darkness to light? What was it? And what made the difference in his life? You see, Christ cared about an outcast named Zacchaeus. He showed him disinterested love. He accepted him where he was at. And based on that love, that sinner turned to salvation. Isn't that how it happens? Paul says it's the grace of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. The parable of Zacchaeus ends with these profound words of purpose in Luke 19, 9 and 10. So open our Bibles now. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. You know, I don't know about you. I can wrap my heart around that statement. The Son of Man came to save Mike Oxentenko, to bathe me in His love, to bathe you in His love, to give me the forgiveness of my sins. You know, I don't stand up here and act like I'm not a sinner by nature and by deed. I have, from time done just that. I struggle with sinful attitudes at times. Have you? And you know, I want a church full of people who are struggling with sinful attitudes. Because if they come to church, Christ can help them with that struggle. He can do for them what He did for Zacchaeus. I come to church because I need the church. I don't come to church to look important or be great. I'm not. I come to church because Christ, my righteousness, has people like me seeking Him in the same place. And that's why I come. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and I don't like tax collectors. You like tax collectors? Huh. I hit a nerve, didn't I? Well, he knew what it was like to cook the books so you could get ahead. So the parable that follows focuses on the purpose of a pound. It's called a mina in many translations, but a pound in mine. in the cause of God. In the call and cause of Christ, there are pounds of purpose given to every believer to make a difference for the salvation of sinners like Zacchaeus. Look at verse 11. We transition from the story of Zacchaeus to the parable that illustrates the importance of using our means ...in the proper way, which Zacchaeus had obviously not done until he became a converted man. It says, "...as they heard these things, he, Christ, proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the king of God was to appear immediately." goes on to say, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far-off country to receive a kingdom and then return. Now you have the whole book of Daniel right there in that one verse. It's amazing. How Jesus can take Daniel 2, Daniel 7, the Mare of Daniel 8 and 9, the King of the North, King of the South of Daniel 11, and the prophecies of Daniel 12, and put it into a single sentence. But here it is. A nobleman went into a far-off country to receive a kingdom and then return. You know, the present participle in the Greek text is used for the English expression as they heard these things. It means that Luke 19.11 is spoken when Luke 19.10 is still fresh in the ears of those who are hearing. And so also the story of Zacchaeus is still fresh in the ears as he speaks this parable. They are to be connected in the context as we unravel the meaning of the parable. Christ is still dwelling here on the theme that he has just introduced. That he came to seek and to save the lost like Zacchaeus. Friend, when people try to drive a wedge between the work of Jesus Christ as Savior at the cross and the work of Jesus Christ as their advocate in the judgment... They're doing something that Christ himself is not doing. I've heard this. You have too. Some are saying, I believe in the cross of Christ, but I don't believe in any investigative judgment or stuff like that. I'm a gospel-believing Christian. Well, they really don't understand the gospel very much because they don't realize the one who took our place on the cross of Calvary is the same one who takes our place in the judgment day. We need a high priest to take the benefits of the cross before the judgment bar of God because of Jesus we have passed from judgment to life. Without that proxy advocate in the heavenly sanctuary, we get nothing of the cross in our daily lives. So when people say that, they know nothing of the gospel really. They have minimalized it away. Friend, Christ, our righteousness, is not a slogan. Christ, our righteousness, is the living person of Jesus for eternity in our lives. The cross of Christ is the gift in full, but it moves through time. And so when people try to drive a wedge between the judgment and the cross, they miss a lot here. Christ is just as concerned about your soul and the judgment as he was when he cried for you on the cross of Calvary. Friend, the person who prayed for you in the Garden of Gethsemane with blood coming out of his pores, with clots of blood hitting the ground, when the great atonement began to be made for us, that person, as our great high priest, will not stop praying for you after the cross or through your life or for all time, for that matter. In Luke 19, 11, the disciples thought that Jesus would set up his kingdom immediately. You know, they were not familiar with the time flow of the book of Daniel. They saw the mighty Roman Empire, they said, well... Get rid of this empire and give us your kingdom now. And so it says, he said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far off country to receive a kingdom and then return. He was trying to instruct them that there would be a series of events before his return. So let's just do a little brief summary of Daniel 7 here because they did not understand Daniel 7 at that time or they wouldn't have been confused. Christ is here interacting with Daniel to help them understand the flow of time. In Daniel 7, like Daniel 2, we had the head of... Bronze, which was the king of Babylon. In Daniel 7, we have a lion. It represents the Babylonian Empire, four great world empires. In Daniel 7, the second kingdom was a bear with three ribs. Medo-Persia conquered three kingdoms, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And it was also symbolized in Daniel 2 by the silver on the image. We saw in the image of Daniel 2 the bronze waist, but we see the four-headed leopard. Both symbolize Greece. After Alexander, The Grecian Empire split into four pieces, and so we have the four divisions of the Greek Empire. Rome, Daniel 2, the legs of iron, but in Daniel 7, the ten-horned beast with iron teeth and bronze claws. Had ten horns, which after Rome was a unified iron monarchy, it divided into what we call modern Europe or Middle Ages Europe. The Holy Roman Empire complex in the Middle Ages. The ten divisions, the ten horns that grew out of it. So, very basic picture here we see of the flow of history through the great world empires. Now, Christ was living during the time of the Roman Empire. He was not living during the time of the Middle Ages or what would follow. Following Rome, the division of Rome into ten basic kings here, we see this. And we're still living today with the countries that came out of the collapse of the Roman Empire. So, in principle, the feet of iron and clay. Ten toes, ten horns, you'll see on the other side in Daniel 7, symbolizes the world to the end. In the Middle Ages, there were monarchies. Those monarchies came to an end functionally as hereditary monarchies around 1917 at the end of World War I. So we are living in the toenails of human history today. That is when God's kingdom, the great stone kingdom, will collide and Jesus' kingdom will be set up. Now, it's very interesting, in the flow of the context here, we see that the ten horns are followed by a little horn that usurps the dominion of Jesus Christ. It has eyes and a mouth like the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man looks like a man because he's the Son of God, but the Son of Man too. But this horn looks like he's the Son of Man. He has eyes and a mouth when he's nothing but a horn, and he boasts, he makes claims against God, he does awful things, he persecutes the church of God. And it is the Antichrist little horn power that will lose his power in the judgment Daniel 7. So after Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then the divided Europe the Middle Ages, at the end of that, there's a judgment in heaven and dominion is taken away from that little horn. It's given to Jesus Christ and then in time it's given to the saints of the Most High. So at the end of the Middle Ages, there's a great event in heaven that marks the reversal of this power's influence Daniel 7, 26. The Bible says, But the court shall sit in judgment, meaning at the end of the Middle Ages, his dominion, that's the little horn's dominion, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey them. Now, it's very interesting here in the context of Daniel 7, the little horn is really hijacking God's people, the Christian church, during the Middle Ages until that judgment sits somewhere around the 1800s contextually. And when that judgment sits in heaven, the church starts to win. The gospel starts to go to the world. And it follows when the saints receive the kingdom, which means Jesus is coming back.
2: More with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. Studying the Bible is vital to our lives. And we would like to help you in that process by providing you free Bible study guides. These full-color Bible study guides are available for you right now if you dial this telephone number. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. We would love for you to call and get your copy of these free Bible study guides at any time. That's 888-244-4673. Now more with Pastor Michael Tenko.
1: So Daniel 7 is a lot of information. And Christ packed all of it into a single verse. He said, a nobleman went into a far off country to receive his kingdom and then return. The Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. I don't know about you, I think that's a great retirement plan. Isn't it? I mean, isn't that a good retirement plan? Now, in the parable of Luke nineteen twelve, Jesus plainly states that a nobleman went into a far-off country receive his kingdom and then return. He doesn't receive his kingdom on earth. It's not the kingdom of earth. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, if you read Luke kind of broadly, as illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, a far-off country represents the distance between heaven and earth. Christ leaves the earth to receive His kingdom in heaven. That is why He calls it the kingdom of heaven. It starts there, not here. And it's established at the end of the Middle Ages in Daniel 7. There was a context for this parable in Jesus' own lifetime. I'll kind of walk it through with you. When Herod the Great died... His son, Archelaus, was nervous that his father's will would be ignored by the Roman Empire. I mean, his father had this inside track under the emperors to kind of do what he wanted to do. He wanted that as well. So the Jews had sent a delegation to Rome to strip him of his throne so he couldn't be a king. So Archelaus journeyed to see Augustus Caesar to have his father's kingdom conferred on him by the emperor of Rome in a far-off land before Caesar himself who was, of course, the sovereign of all kingdoms in the world at that time. So Christ is using this as an illustration. Like fashion, after his death and resurrection, Jesus would go into a far-off country called heaven for the express purpose at the end of the Middle Ages of receiving his kingdom and a pre-advent heavenly judgment. And once he had received his kingdom, then returning to this earth. So Daniel describes the scene as it is as it began shortly after After the 1260 years of medieval persecution, when this little horn power had wrecked the Christian church, right as the French Revolution is bringing it down, there's a heavenly judgment scene. And according to the book of Daniel, at the end of the old order of the Middle Ages, a judgment is seen in heaven. And look what happens here, Daniel 7 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came. Now, many people, when they read a verse, they don't pay attention to context. It doesn't say there came one like a son of man to the earth. It doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? There came one like a son of man where? To the ancient of days and was presented before him. The son of man is going right smack into the throne room of God in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at the end of the Middle Ages. That's what's being pictured in Daniel 7. You can't pull anything out of it. I've seen people try to twist the Aramaic of that. It does not fly in the linear narrative which is supreme. Now look at verse 14. And to him was given what? Dominion, glory, and kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Now where does he get this kingdom? On earth or in the presence of his Father in heaven in the context? In heaven before the Father. In this great pre-advent judgment. Now, we know in the context of Daniel 7, the books are opened. That millions of angels are watching those books as they're opened. This is investigative pre-advent judgment. And he goes on to say, to him was given a kingdom, dominion, and glory. Now, friend, you may think you deserve something in life, but you don't deserve anything, really. You don't deserve a thing. Guess who is worthy and deserving? Jesus God's not going to give you the kingdom. He's going to give it to Jesus. And Christ will give it to you. So who do you need to get it? You need Jesus in your life. It goes on to say, So that every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, here His kingdom is an everlasting dominion for all peoples. It will never be destroyed. So very clear, verse 14, it's for everybody, but only through Jesus. So in a pre-advent heavenly judgment in Daniel 7, just before Jesus returns... God the Father gives the kingdom to His Son, Jesus Christ, at the end of time. Do you realize that's what's happening right now? That we are living during that time as I preach this sermon right now? We should worship God differently in light of that fact. So according to the parable, the nobleman returns as soon as he receives the kingdom. Christ has not yet fully received His kingdom. Why would He stay any longer? Once He has His kingdom, He comes. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? The parable focuses on what happens between the time he leaves and the time he returns. And that's where we live. We live in the in-between time. The parable introduces the importance of a pound of purpose in the light of his return. Now, the word return that I've used here is really a pun. It means two things. It means a return on the investment which the nobleman has made, and it means his physical return that makes it realized. His return in both ways matters. What we do with what he has given us and his return in which it will be seen that we have been faithful. Friend, when you invest in life, there is risk. There is no such thing as an investment that has no risk. Even the interest you have in the bank is at risk because they can close the bank. And in fact, if you're working off of simple interest, it's not keeping track of inflation. It's a loss. Investments involve risk. And you cannot have a return unless you take the risk of losing something. Did you hear me? Now, it may come as a surprise to some to find that Christ is an entrepreneur. You don't think so? he took this little mud ball called planet earth slinging around a sun before it was actually hot and light it was just the darkness and the deep and he invested love energy and power in planet earth to create it right then he made people on it right and he wants to return from that he wants beings that love him and he can love them back christ is an investor why do you think he poured his blood out of the cross just so that he could Make a statement, as some would say. No, He was investing in your life and mine to save us from our sins. God invests. And you know, He wants people in the church. We used to have something in our church called investment. We don't hear much about it anymore. People put investment strategies aside for missionary labor and this kind of thing. Why? Because the early Adventist church, they were entrepreneurs who are using their energy, their creativity to invest in the cause of God. So if you invest wisely... And you invest broadly, not just in one thing. There's always a return in heaven's economy.
2: That will conclude the first portion of Pounds of Purpose. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Stay with me for just a few minutes, and I'll give you details on how you can download your own personal copy of this broadcast. Well, as you probably know, survival is big business these days. People spend thousands of dollars on wilderness survival camps. They want to learn how to survive in light of unprecedented natural disasters, the potential of a nuclear attack or civil unrest. But how do you spiritually survive life's disasters? The new book entitled Ultimate Survival will give you practical steps on how you can survive spiritually. This is a great book, and we'd love you to have it right now. It's titled Ultimate Survival. You'll discover keys to physical, mental, and spiritual survival you may not know existed. Call right now, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Once again, that telephone number is 888-244-4673, 888-244-HOPE. If you've been inspired by this message and want to partner with us to further spread these messages and keep us broadcasting on the air, then we welcome your partnership. And you can give a donation of any amount. We thank you for your support. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area or passing through, we'd love to welcome you to our church family. Stop by reaching Hearts International and join us for a worship service every Saturday at 11 o'clock or Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. The address for the church is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. If you're wondering how to get a copy of today's broadcast, You can go to reachingyourheart.com and download a copy or listen right there in on-demand audio format. Again, the address for the website is reachingyourheart.com. Thanks for listening today. We hope you'll join us again next time for another Reaching Your Heart.